And hopefully, um, parents, this gives you a little bit of help, because I know how hard it is to keep, you know, the wiggle, you know, they've got to wiggle, they've got to move, and, and we're good with that. We love having children with us. And uh, we're going to talk about the Lord Jesus now. And I draw your attention to the end of Matthew's gospel. We're going to actually start at the end of chapter 27, just that last paragraph, and then we're going to go into chapter 28 and see how that gospel concludes. So if you want to follow with me, it'll be up on the screen here, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they set a seal on it from the governor that would threaten anybody that would dare break that seal to open the tomb. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. There was earthquakes when he died. There's earthquakes here at his resurrection. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, or attention, look, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were yet going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you 
always to the end of the age. I want to draw your attention this morning to the three commands that the angel at the tomb gave to the women there. Later in the passage, Jesus himself echoes what the angel said, and the whole passage really underscores these three fitting responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find the words in verse 5, but the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So three main takeaways from this passage that we want to take with us this morning. First, don't fear. He is risen. Second, come see, investigate. He is risen. And finally, go tell, for He has risen. First, consider with me why this command, don't fear, He is risen. In verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. These are also the first words that Jesus gave them as well. In verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This repeated command reminds us that darkness and danger had dominated the disciples' lives for a long time. In recent days and weeks, it had become overwhelming. Despite the self-confident assertions of Peter that he would never forsake the Lord, he had denied him three times. And all the disciples had fled for their lives. And even at this moment, they are in hiding. Why? Well, the most powerful men in the Jewish nation were trying to stamp out the very memory of Jesus and had prepared to go after his followers with a vengeance. They had gained access to the power of Rome to execute Jesus. It's hard to imagine that there could be any hope at all that Christianity would survive the crushing blow. The most powerful forces at that time were arrayed against him. If these wicked men could take out the promised Messiah himself, despite all his unparalleled preaching, all his mighty miracles, what hope did the fishermen and tax collectors who had followed him, what hope did they have? They were utterly cowed. These women had come to express their love for the murdered Messiah. It was the only thing left that they could do. Do not be afraid. The angel's command literally reads, don't you be afraid. In contrast to the Roman soldiers who trembled and fell on the ground as dead men when the angel of God appeared and rolled back the stone. I mean, think about it. These are warriors. These are men that are used to bloody battlefields. These are men that know what it is to act with courage in the face of great danger and fear. And yet this is, this is greater than anything they've faced before. The most common and natural immediate response to the sudden appearance of an angel of God is abject fear. The angels are spirit beings 
created by God. They are ranked higher than human beings in terms of power and ability. They are God's messengers. They're far mightier than human beings. You remember that one angel killed all the firstborn of Egypt in the final plague that finally broke Pharaoh's resistance and forced him to let the nation of Israel be set free. It was just one angel. That's all it took that wiped out 185,000 soldiers of Sennacherib's army who were besieging Jerusalem in the days of King Hezekiah. Whenever you read the eyewitness accounts of angels making themselves visible to human beings, one of the first things angels will say is, fear not. Remember, when the angels appeared to the shepherds outside Bethlehem on the night that Jesus Christ was born, they were coming with good news, but, but their appearance was so overwhelming, they say first, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. But these women who loved Jesus and believed in him had nothing to fear from this heavenly being. They were among God's beloved ones. And the angels are his servants to minister to women like these, to the heirs of salvation, whatever their needs might be, according to Hebrews 1. Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus who was crucified. With him died your hopes of redemption. With him died your certainty that he was the promised deliverer from sin and its curse, the everlasting king he is not here because he is not dead, not anymore. He has risen from the dead. Your confidence in him was not misplaced. His crucifixion was not the end. He had to die to make a way for sinners back to God. But he has conquered death to fulfill his own words and those of Holy Scripture. Death could not hold him. Do not fear. So what are you afraid of that the risen Christ cannot overcome? Society's disdain and slander? Mistreatment or persecution? Disappointment or disillusionment? An uncertain future? Sorrow? Death? What are you afraid of? that Christ can overcome? In what areas of your life do you need to hear and heed Christ's call not to be afraid? He is risen. If Jesus is mightier than all the schemes of man and stronger than death itself, if He has died as the substitute for your sin before God, delivering you from divine judgment, what is left for you to fear, neither men nor angels can overcome you. You belong to Him. Do not fear. He is risen. The second command of the angel is, come and see. He is risen. Verse 6, He is not here, for He has risen, as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. 
And last part of verse 7, behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. This is not just take my word for it kind of news. This is come and see, investigate, see for yourself. This is tangible. This is real. The angel invites these women to see the empty tomb. The body is gone. There's no question about that. And then he promises that they are to go to Galilee and that there they will see Jesus with their own eyes. And then Jesus does better than that. He does better than even what the angel promised. He meets them in person that very day. In verse 9, we read, Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They took hold of his feet. This is no apparition. This is no spirit. This is no mere vision. Jesus rose bodily from the grave, else they could not have taken hold of his feet. Later in Galilee, we read, Matthew 28, 17, When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. We remember the account of doubting Thomas, one of the disciples. He was not with the disciples when Jesus first appeared to them on one of the many occasions that he did. But even Thomas was finally convinced. He saw Jesus. He saw the wounds in Jesus' hands and side. And Jesus invited him to touch those wounds to verify that it was indeed the same Jesus that Thomas loved. The same Jesus that Thomas followed. The same Jesus that Thomas had seen crucified. This same Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is no myth concocted from wishful thinking among his bereaved followers. God has seen to it that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best attested events in all of human history. Those who cast it off as a mere legend have not done their homework. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, written roughly 25 years after the resurrection, Paul writes these words, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas as Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Even the enemies of Jesus unintentionally join in proving the reality of the resurrection. The chief priests, guardians of temple worship, the Pharisees, the separatists, guardians of Jewish ways in contrast to the Greek world, These conspired to work hard to destroy Jesus, and they wanted to make sure to destroy his memory as well. They hated him with a deadly hatred. They called him an imposter and a fraud. Why so? Well, he did not adhere to their traditions, and he did not bow to their abuse of leadership. You remember that twice Jesus drove out the money changers in the temple. They were working for the chief priests and called the place a den of thieves. He refused to keep the man-made traditions of the fathers regarding how the Sabbath was to be kept. 
He also dared to associate with sinners, even tax collectors and prostitutes. The Pharisees, earlier on, would not enter Pilate's hall, lest they defile themselves for the Passover festival. But they're so determined in their hatred of Jesus that here they actually violate their own Sabbath rules. It was the day after preparation. It's a Sabbath day. And they enter to gain, they enter the halls of Pilate to gain a Roman guard for the tomb. They reveal the hypocrisy of their rules and separatist tradition. In fact, Jesus had warned his disciples. You know, the Pharisees were very, very respected, as were the priests. And And Jesus warned his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. These rules were useful to prove their superiority over others. But when it suited their purpose, they gladly violated them to make sure their murder of an innocent man is not reversed by the resurrection that he predicted. They gain a Roman guard for the tomb of Jesus. They seal it so that no no one can can break that seal lest they be killed on the spot. They ensure that the fearful disciples now in hiding cannot possibly come steal the body. But their plan backfires. Religious and secular power combined fail. And when the angel rolls back the stone, the body is gone. Now some of the soldiers come report to these leaders what happened. So they heard the eyewitness account. So they know what really happened. But it doesn't suit their agenda. They create their talking points, as those in power often do. While the guards were sleeping, the disciples stole the body, they say. Spread that rumor. The guards were taking a huge risk. To give this story, cast them as derelict in their duty, punishable by death. So the conspirators pay them handsomely for the risk and promise to cover for them with the governor. But wait a minute. If they were sleeping so soundly that this massive stone could be moved and the body stolen, how do they know the disciples stole the body? They didn't see it happen. They were asleep. Furthermore, their story confirms that the body is, in fact, gone. All anyone had to do to disprove the resurrection was to produce a body. Imagine the conversations they had as they're trying to spread this rumor. I mean, for many people said, well, that's good enough for me. I wasn't sure about that guy anyway. But then somebody goes, well, well wait a minute. You say you were, you were sleeping? I mean, can you do that? I mean, are you fired now? I mean... Why aren't you guys in jail? Oh, well, well, it, it was a special case. Um, and, and, and we've talked to our authorities, and, and uh, it, it's okay with them. It's, it's okay with them? I mean, why would it be okay with them? Well, it's, it's classified. <laughs> the guy gets thinking, okay, so you were sleeping. Wait a minute, if you were sleeping, how do you know the disciples stole the body? Oh, well, we, we just know that because that's what we were told. Well, wait a minute, I thought you were there. And then he starts thinking some more. Okay, so the disciples stole... You mean the body was missing? Yeah, the, the body was missing. But it's, it's like I told you, look, I don't have any more time, I got to go. 
Do you remember the taunting words of these wicked men, these leaders at the cross? In Matthew 27, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, which, by the way, is a prophecy of his resurrection, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. It's as if Jesus answered them, I'll do you one better. Instead of coming down from the cross, how about I come up from the grave? As for those nowadays who say Jesus never really died, that he just swooned, then revived in the cool of the tomb, they reveal that they know very little about Roman crucifixion. Roman soldiers were experts at killing people. They were probably the best in the world at it at the time, and they knew when a person was dead. The Roman centurion had confirmed Jesus was dead by a spear thrust into his side, from which came blood and water, that is, the fluid from around the sack that's around the heart. Christianity is not a mere code of ethics. It's not just ceremonial tradition. It's, it's not rooted in mysticism and philosophy. It comes from eyewitness history, firsthand accounts of what Jesus said and did. Come and see. Living for Christ impacts our personal history in the same way. The transformation that God works on the inside doesn't remain at some mystical, imaginary level. It, it changes our real-life words and actions. It becomes visible. It's the fruit of those who have life from God. So given all the historical evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what else could you possibly ask for to know the truth about whether He is the Messiah and the Savior and the risen Lord. I mean, really, what else could you ask for? And, and if you are a believer, what real-life practical evidence do you show of belonging to Jesus and following Him? Because the world, your friends that don't know Jesus yet, they need to know that this is for real. They need to know that this is not just that you got religion and you started going to church. They need to know that something has happened to you that they can't explain apart from God, just like you can't explain the resurrection apart from God. They need to see that in us because we've been risen with Christ. And then finally, the command, go and tell, he is risen. In verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples, that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. In verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So I'm reading this passage, and I'm going, wait a minute. Why, why Galilee? Why Galilee? The fact is, Jesus began his ministry in this region of Galilee. Not just Jews, but, but people from many other nations lived there. Paganism was all around. Why did Jesus spend so much time in this area of Israel? Matthew 4, that talks about the beginning of his ministry, gives us a clue. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee, 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is in Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. The northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali have been overrun by the Assyrians who deported many Jews from there and imported many Assyrians. The result was a mixture of Judaism and paganism, the Samaritan culture, the Samaritan religion. And you remember Jesus' powerful interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. In John 4, he says to her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he's saying, you know, your religion has gotten mixed with paganism, and you're confused. The, the true religion is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. I mean, this woman represents just about every person on earth who is yet to be introduced to Jesus. This this, this represents those who many in our own community that look at, at churchgoers and look at religion. It just, it's confusing. It seems hypocritical. It, it, it seems to contradict itself. It's, it's not anything like what we, we thought God should be like. And then they meet Jesus. And they finally see God. And they finally understand the truth. And they finally realized that they were right about a lot of those religious people because they weren't living as if they actually knew God. They weren't living in the power of Christ. And they come to believe just as this woman did. You remember that she believed and went back into town telling everyone about Jesus. They, they came to see him for themselves, and many of them also came to trust in him as the promised Savior King, the Messiah. That was from Isaiah 9. That's the way that chapter leads off. Just a few verses later, we see these words regarding Galilee of the nations. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So why Galilee? Jesus will ascend to heaven from the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, but it is here in Galilee of the nations that Jesus will give the great commission to make disciples of all nations, of all ethnicities. 
In verses 18 to 20 of our passage, we read, Jesus came and said to him, said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, look, attention, I am with you always, all the days, to the end of the age. The main command is to make disciples, learners and followers of Jesus, mentor these people, show them, teach them, all ethnicities. Here you are in Galilee of the nations, let's go out from here. While you're going, actually that's the main command, there are three modifiers, going, baptizing, and teaching. So while you're going or, or having gone, you're on the move, you are, you are finding people, you're telling them about Jesus, you're, you're teaching them about Jesus, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, they're becoming open followers of Jesus, and you're teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. In other words, your job is not just to tell them Jesus died and rose again, your job is to tell them He's King, He's Savior, and they need to follow Him, and here's how you do it. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, there would be no good news to tell. There would be no disciples to make. There would only be memories of a martyr and a lost cause. But that is not the testimony of history. In fact, Jesus himself predicted in Acts 1 that his gospel would go to all the world. He uses future tense. These are not just commands. You will receive power... When the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, you will give this eyewitness testimony in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that is why, on this resurrection morning, you and I worship Jesus here. This place was part of the uttermost heart of the earth when Jesus made that prediction. Somebody went. Somebody told. Somebody made disciples over and over and over again until it finally got to you and to me. And our job is to do the same thing, to go and tell. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is far too significant to keep hidden. It proved that all that Jesus said about himself was true, that he is in fact the promised Savior of the world, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that reconciles us to God, the King of an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. And if you want proof, even death cannot stop him. He is unstoppable. Wherever you go, If you are a believer in Jesus, how are you making it your business to make disciples of the risen Lord? What are the names of the persons you are telling about Jesus? And in what ways are you teaching them to observe what he has commanded us? There is no reason to fear he is risen. There is no reason for doubt he is risen. And we dare not be silent, for he is risen. Don't fear. Come see. Go tell. He is risen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Oh, God, you know who we are right down to the depths of our souls. You know every particle of our life, 
Every time we've failed you, every time we've doubted you, Lord, you know those that are yours here this morning. You know those who are not yet yours. And God, I pray especially for that second group. I pray for those who've been wrestling with, with the fear and with the doubt and, and, and wondering whether or not Jesus really should be followed. There's so many distractions. There's so much that, that, that's confusing. There, there's so many people that name his name that don't seem to show his character and his power. Oh, God, help them see Jesus today. Help them, help them listen to your word, to the voice of your spirit. Lord, lead them, grant them repentance from their old way, repentance from their self-reliance, repentance from their sin, and Lord, grant them faith to rely completely on Jesus, to transfer the weight of their life and their hopes, their dreams, their, their, their desire for cleansing, to transfer that over to you and let you rescue them. For that is who you are, our Savior, our Deliverer, the one who conquers sin and death, the one who indeed even intercedes for us at this moment, who is coming back again to claim his own. God, bring them into the kingdom. Bring them into his band of disciples this day. And Lord, I pray for those that are already believing in you. God, make us bold. Help us not fear. Lord, help us present the evidence. Help us present not just the historical evidence of the past, but the historical evidence of our own lives empowered by Jesus. And God, open our mouths. Open our mouths and our hearts to those who need this good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. This unstoppable Savior. God, may we be unstoppable as well. He has promised he would build his church and the gates of hell would not stand up against it. So God, we claim that promise. Make us unstoppable too. For it's in Christ's name we pray.